Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Well, I mean, again, it's, it is, it's war and the enemy gets a vote. Derek Cholet is not a household name. So you know, we've been very clear to them that you know, our deterrence remains strong. He has a title that is unusual, even to those familiar with the lingo of the D.C. foreign policy bureaucracy, the counselor of the department. Yeah, counselor of the State Department. It is a title that can uh, perhaps seem made up. I think my, <laughs> my, my, family, my family thought it was completely made up. But you can get a sense of his influence by seeing where he sits on the seventh floor at State. You walk through the treaty room and into the wood-paneled offices of the Secretary's inner sanctum. There's Antony Blinken's office, which is decorated with modern art on loan from the Smithsonian. Then there's Blinken's chief of staff. And then there's Derek's office. So you're right there, um, you know, shouting distance from yes. Secretary Blinken. Yes. Um, we're not a shouting operation. <laughs> he is essentially the Secretary of State's closest advisor. He's been working in foreign policy jobs in and out of the government ever since he was a college intern at State back in 1992, the year after the Soviet Union dissolved. And he's been at the center of all of the Biden administration's debates about the crisis in Ukraine. He has strong feelings about what's going on. On his desk, he has a mug. It reads, F*** you, Putin. This is Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Ryan Lizza. So, Derek, I mean, one of the interesting things about the fact that we've known each other a while is that, you know, if you cover things long enough and you're around long enough in these senior positions, the people that you kind of like came up with in Washington are suddenly the people who are the central policymakers in a very, you know, very serious times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just let's start a little bit by talking about your history mm -hmm. and, and, and maybe talk, especially since you've written quite a bit about big picture foreign policy issues. And you have learned from some of the sort of legends of foreign policy making, people like Talbot and Holbrook. Um, and just so we can like come up to the current crisis, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about and trace some of the yin and yang in the democratic foreign policy making world. Well, my first time here in the State Department was the summer of 1992. And I worked on the policy planning staff at the State Department, which was then led by Dennis Ross, and the deputy was Bill Burns, who's now our director of CIA. So yeah. I've known Bill since 1992. James Baker was Secretary of State, and that was a very momentous summer. Boris Yeltsin, then the president of Russia, made his first summit visit here to Washington in the summer of 1992. Huh. And Baker left the State Department in August of 1992 to go run Bush's re-election campaign. Um, and I was very fortunate. I was the only intern on the, on the policy planning staff, which was extremely influential under Secretary Baker. And so 
I was able to work with and get to know a lot of folks uh, that have, are still influential uh, in my life. Um, were you on, was that were you, as an intern? Were you on this floor? Yeah, yeah. yeah I was yeah. just I was just down the hall from where we're sitting right now. And um, because of that experience, I got a call. I was planning to go to graduate school. Got a call though from someone I had worked with uh, here at State, um, who was going with Secretary Baker after Bush had lost his reelection to help Baker in his in his post-Secretary of State life to write books and speeches and all that. Yeah. And they needed a young research assistant and they hired me. So my first job in Washington, 1993 to 1995, was working for Secretary Baker, helping him write his memoirs as uh, his, about his time as Secretary of State, as well as various odd jobs that one would do when they're 22 years old yeah. you know, working here in town. Do you remember anything researching his memoir that was like a big aha moment? Like, wow, that's how it's done when you're Secretary of State? Oh, there were so many with him. I mean, I think one that has been on our, my mind recently is the painstaking work that he undertook to build the coalition that waged the first Gulf War. Baker traversed the world to build that coalition. It, it's a model that we have quite consciously had in mind over the last several months with Secretary Blinken uh, building an, another kind of coalition. Uh, and as we prepared for and tried to avert Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but uh, to build our response to that. And you were Holbrook's speechwriter. So well. then later, I helped Holbrook write a book, yeah. uh, his book To End a War, which is about the Bosnian negotiations that led to the Dayton Peace Agreement. Yeah. He became UN ambassador in 99, and that's when I, I came aboard as his speechwriter. Yeah. Um, and had a close association with him. You guys were really close. For up until the day he died. And we were just in the room where he was visiting with Secretary Terry Clinton. Where he, his aorta burst in the in the office of the Secretary of State. Where we, where where we, we just were. were. Just were, the outer office. Um, and then he died a few days later. Look, I've been thinking a lot about Holbrook or Strobe Talbot, who was another boss of mine uh, as Deputy Secretary of State in the Clinton administration quite a bit because both of them, not only were they amazing diplomats and, and leaders. They also were instrumental in the events of the 1990s to uh, try to forge a new relationship with Russia, to enlarge NATO, and, and forge a new relationship with the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. And so what we've been watching unfold uh, with Russia is, is the dismantling of three decades of effort trying to forge a new relationship with Russia. And obviously NATO enlargement is still something that's very much in the debate right now. Yeah. Um, but because of Holbrook and, and Talbot's role in forging NATO enlargement, uh, you know, their, their lessons are still very much with us, I think. Just quickly on that, do you ever think back to those debates about NATO enlargement that are, that are now becoming revisited and think, um, I know this is, this is sort of edges into, you know, Russian propaganda in, in a way, right. but Friedman's, uh, yeah. you know, and others who have made the point of, well, not that it justifies what's happening now, but should we have, should the United States have been more cognizant of the effect it would have, whether right or wrong? I, I think... In anyone who's studied the history of, of NATO enlargement, and there's been some terrific work done now that so many of the records are available mm -hmm. in terms of the Clinton administration's deliberations over NATO enlargement, bears this out that there is a lot of thought given to, to Russia 
and the relationship with Russia. I mean, Strobe, like that was a well-ventilated. We, we used to say about Strobe, I mean, Strobe was the Russia hand for the Clinton administration. Right, and right. That there were two lobes of Strobe's brain, the Russia lobe and the NATO lobe. And he was the one who- In other words, he was very sensitive very to what sensitive. the Russian thinking on this was. And I think, you know, actually, if anything, I think the current crisis validates further the wisdom of NATO enlargement. Because right now we have many countries in Central and Eastern Europe who- uh, we are very close partners with who are who are uh, they're additive to to our common security. Uh, they have more capable militaries. I just shudder to think what it would be the world would look like if they weren't members of NATO. The other the other piece of NATO that I think often gets overlooked in some of the Washington debates about NATO enlargement yeah. is is they are a void of agency of the countries involved. And NATO is a defensive alliance. NATO was not imposed on anyone. These are sovereign countries who in most cases went through, had to make some extraordinarily difficult decisions and sacrifices in their own country in terms of reforms and getting their militaries ready to join NATO. Right. It's, right. it's you, a process. You to raise your hand and, and join. No one is, and it's a very, very high bar to get into NATO. In some countries, it takes them years and years to even meet the qualifications. Right, right. So, you know, sometimes our debates, I find, are lacking in the voices of those countries who joined NATO during from 1999 up until the present. Nobody was forced. Many countries, uh, including Ukraine, very much want to be part of NATO, but yet haven't been able to, to meet that goal. People know Deputy Secretary of State Rex. Right. Yes. But you have a, a unique position in the State Department. Sure. And so you, we just went into your office. You're the Secretary of State, his main office, and there's a small office, his chief of staff, and then there's your office that's connected to that. So you're right there. Um, you know, a shouting distance from yes. Secretary Blinken. Yes. Yeah. Counselor of the State Department. It is a title that it's over a century old. And the job in some ways is what the Secretary of State makes of it and the relationship between the person and the secretary. I've had the good fortune of knowing Secretary Blinken for many, many years. You from, pretty close in age? Or? Uh, he's a, he's a no. almost not quite 10 years older than me, but we were we served together in the Clinton administration. And of course, on in the Hill, we were on Capitol Hill at the same time. Yeah. And then in the Obama administration. Um, so we've known each other for quite a long time. So uh, I'd say part of my job is um, helping him navigate uh, his life as Secretary of State. Uh, there's also then, I have some bandwidth that some of my other senior colleagues here uh, don't necessarily have because they've got to manage a lot of folks to take on projects either by design or by default, either things come up that someone's yeah. just got to handle and I'm around to do it, or by design, it's an area that the secretary, others have decided we really need to dig into and, and I can provide that that kind of, uh, that kind of support. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, uh, it, you know, over the last year, everything, I mean, I thought for the first few months in the job, because uh, I walked in on January 20th, even before the secretary did, I didn't have to go through Senate confirmation for this right. job. Um, so uh, for the first few months, it was just about getting altitude and making sure that this building, which had, had been through a rough few years and a pretty choppy transition, uh, and we didn't have a lot of our senior folks here yet helping us get off the ground. Uh, and so, Just quickly on that, because yeah. the same thing was said after the Bush years when there was some image issues with yeah. the United States that the State Department was, right. the Obama State Department was looking to fix. Um, you saw up close both. How much worse, from your perspective, was the post-Trump era compared to the post-Bush era? 
No real comparison. Really? Uh, yeah, I mean, I Secretary Rice, Condoleezza Rice, was a was a very good Secretary of State. This was a well-run department, and despite all of the turbulence of the Bush years, there was a lot of uh, a lot of strong muscles in our diplomacy. But across the board, things were just a lot rougher, and the State Department wasn't alone here. Bureaucratically, had had been challenged certainly uh, in the previous few years, and then the transition was was difficult. Um, and there was just a lot of repair work to be done in a lot of relationships around the world. And so that was something that Secretary Blinken, all of us here really set out to do last year. And I feel like as we look at the first few months of 2022, we've been able to reap some of the rewards of that hard work last year. We are in a better position than to, to meet those challenges today than we would have been a year ago, certainly. So one of the things that's you mentioned not having a big bureaucracy to run and as a, a as a, a student of foreign policy bureaucracy in washington you know that uh that is one of the ways in washington to exercise influence right you know there's a famous memo that uh mondale wrote about the vice presidency mm -hmm. and i know biden and ron Klain, who's a student of the vice presidency often talks about this and anyone who's going to be vice president you know, references back to the, the Mondale memo because right. Mondale's advice for any incoming vice president was, you don't want to run anything. Right. <laughs> you just want to be an advisor to the president. Right. You want to be the last person in the room. You don't want to right. be bogged down with bureaucratic bullshit of right. running White House, right. you know. Right. That's, in, that's what's unique about your position. Yeah. And so I wonder if, as we get into the weeds on the Ukraine crisis, I wonder if one way to help us understand the um, perspective of you and Secretary Blinken is to take us through some of the major, major decisions that this administration has had to make mm -hmm. since the start of the crisis. Mm -hmm. And maybe just start with saying, when did the, what is the start of the crisis from your perspective? Is it when the first troops started going towards that border? Uh, I mean, don't take us back a hundred years. No, but, no, no. no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But I, I'm just right. curious when it became, oh shit, this is what yeah. The next two years, then 10 years. <laughs> now, so I, I, I vividly recall having a conversation with a colleague in October of last year that this could be a presidency defining moment. October 2021. October 2021. Yeah. And that's when we first started seeing indications of what the Russians were up to. Mm. And early on, the, none of this was public, obviously, and, and it wasn't yet getting picked up by commercial imagery to see Russian troop deployments, but we were picking up through intelligence. You guys weren't talking about it at we all. We weren't talking like, about yeah. it yet yeah. at all. And yeah. and the first, uh, we started to talk about it in the end of October. And in fact, it was at the G20 summit in Italy uh, where President Biden did a short meeting with the Chancellor of Germany, the Prime Minister of the UK, the President of France, and it might've been the Italian Prime Minister, and they talked about a variety of things, but one of them was these indications that we had we were starting to see. Yeah, and yeah. so we were watching it then. And of course, it was all kind of warning signs. Nothing was foreordained. And so yeah. this got our attention and we started to watch it build. And we, starting at the end of October, we started to talk to allies and partners about what we were seeing and progressively share more and more information. And it was in then mid-November, uh, and I remember this because I was in Brussels, and coincidentally that day, Avril Haines was briefing the North Atlantic Council, NATO's 
governing body, she, uh, so she, the intelligence. That it. was in mid-November. So this is a long way of saying we we understood early on that if if what we were seeing turned out to be true, this would be a game changer. Of course, we we also understood that we needed to do everything we could to prevent that from happening. So part of the diplomatic effort and the time we were given by having this early heads up, and, and as we watched the evidence continue to build of what Russia was doing, we used that time to try to find a diplomatic off-ramp and Secretary Blinken worked tirelessly with allies uh, to, to try to engage the Russians in some meaningful way and really make it clear that we were trying our best to find some diplomatic way out and test whether the Russians were actually interested in any diplomacy. It turns out they weren't. Yeah. We had low expectations whether they were, but we felt like we needed to get caught trying. But then in parallel to make clear that consequences would be swift and severe if Russia were to act. And so to use that time to build up the coalition to impose sanctions if Russia were to act, to you know, further their isolation, and all of the things you've seen play out over the past several weeks were things that were put into train from November, December, January. When did you decide to um, go very public with the intelligence, right? A lot of the story of this conflict from the American side is very quick um, declassification yes. of very sensitive yes. stuff, right. putting it out in the public domain. Mm -hmm. Can you take us through that process a little bit about, or those sort of like strategic uh, thinking behind it? Sure, absolutely. And there was, uh, Ryan, there was, there was a couple of purposes of it. And uh, first, all credit really needs to go to Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, Bill Burns, the director of CIA, who really pushed their buildings to do things that are uncomfortable for them. It's no secret, no pun intended. It's why intelligence agencies aren't necessarily enthusiasts of making this public in this way. Yeah, this is we, because anytime you're disclosing intelligence, there's always a risk that you're disclosing how that intelligence is gathered, right? And so I think the, the, there's a couple goals here. I mean, one was to clearly try to prepare the American people, our allies, uh, the, the world for what was happening and to explain what we were seeing happening. Because the other interesting piece of this is some of this was in plain sight. I mean, this wasn't, you know, as I said, you had commercial satellites, you know, releasing images of of Russian troop deployments around Ukraine or inside Belarus. And so to explain what we were seeing, because, of course, the Russians were out there saying, well, this is all just an exercise and we have no intention of doing anything. And this is all just made up. I mean, really, up until the day they invaded, they were saying that our claims were bogus. I mean, which obviously events have proven them to be very true. The other piece of it was to try to slow them down, to buy time, to get in their head a little bit uh, in terms- how, how so? Well, to the extent that when you can expose some of their playbook, it makes it harder for them to execute their playbook, right? And also it conditions everyone to understand what's happening, given that we know Russia's playbook, it's well-established playbook, and it goes back to Soviet times, is to create false flags, to create pretexts that then you, they use as a justification for their actions. So Secretary Blinken gave a speech to the UN Security Council uh, in February prior to the Russian invasion. And it was something that we had decided to do, he had decided to do the evening before to deliver a speech in which he laid out in great detail the scenario in which we would expect to see Russia create a pretext for a possible invasion. And if you go back and look at that speech and read it today, you see that it played out almost to the syllable in terms of what Russia did. Everything from a from a claim of some 
event inside Ukraine to a to a staged yeah. Security Council meeting of the Russian, you know, senior like and we saw that play out on TV. Yeah. And one thing leads to another and you have an invasion. And so th- that was an attempt both to show them we, we were on to them, but it was also a way to try to condition everyone to what was coming. Now, that the, the venue for that speech did, was not lost on us. Where we're talking about sensitive intelligence about a you know possible military conflict, the venue was not lost on us given what another Secretary of State who had spoken there in 2003 in a very different context. You're when, talking about... Colin, Powell's, Colin Powell's speech, speech before the, the war. Before the war in Iraq. Where about, he held up the, the vial. The, held up the, the famous speech. Secretary Blinken referenced that speech obliquely. He said, he said, you know. That wasn't he, Powell's greatest moment. He didn't say that. He doesn't, I think objectively <laughs> that's probably true. But what he said is he said, I know you, the world, have heard from other secretaries of state in this historic room talking about intelligence. And, and he said some version of, I want to be wrong. Like this is something where where the consequences would be so profound, yeah. we we would be happy to be wrong. Just let me yeah. loop back to one yeah, yeah. point is that I remember talking to a colleague uh, actually from Europe um, in the lead up to the invasion. And this person had, had texted me to say they were worried of the consequences to American credibility and leadership if we were wrong about the, mm. of all of this. Because even again, remember, oh, even yeah. up until the bombs started dropping, People were thinking this can't be true. That this Putin's not going to do this. This is and believe me, sometimes I was looking at the intelligence and thinking to myself, this can't be true. This seems so crazy. Um, but <laughs> nevertheless, we were reading what we were reading here, and and but this person said I'd be really worried about the blow to U.S. credibility if you're wrong. And I said, look, if you what if he doesn't if, if he, he doesn't, doesn't go do in this. if he doesn't go yeah. in or if yeah. he goes in and it's it's sort of a, a really a, a a small effort effort or something like that and i i i respond to this person saying you know i would accept that cost that our our credibility would would take a hit if we turn out to be wrong i don't think we're wrong i 99% sure we're right but then when the invasion unfortunately happened the way we were thinking it would i thought the the reverse of that which is yeah. Given yeah. all the United States has been through over the last several decades, unfortunately, these unfo- these terrible events have enhanced our leadership position because there's a lot of partners around the world who said, "Hey, we were listening to everything you said. We we knew we took took you on your word this was happening, but we still didn't really believe it." And now it's not not only happened, but it's happened exactly the way you said. And it's a huge intelligence triumph. I can't think of a of a parallel in American history where the intelligence community got it so it, right. So right. I just I Anyway, so well, I do. I was going to ask you about that. There was a sort of a boy who cried wolf quality to the way the rest of the, not the rest of the world, but that some parts of the world were viewing this. And I never watching this as an outsider wondered, was this a strategic thing that they they surely believe what the uh, what the satellite imagery shows? Mm-hmm. But why why was there so much skepticism and surprise even in Ukraine? So, you know, some of the reports from southern and eastern Ukraine are of, and I don't know if it's just because they're more, they're watching more Russian uh, media, but of, of people who really didn't know that this was coming. Yeah. You know, you see, see, see some of the reports from the, the right. cities, people fleeing. Right. Um, and, I've, you know, I've heard some people say, well, you know, for all praise that Zelensky gets, you know, some criticism that he, he should have uh, prepared, uh, 
Ukrainians uh, more for this, but it wasn't just Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, Germany seemed uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty mm-hmm. skeptical. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that skepticism and what explains it? Well, I, look, I think there's several explanations for it. I, obviously, not everyone had the full benefit of the information we had. We were sharing a lot, perhaps more than ever before, but we weren't sharing everything. Yeah. And even for those of us who were able to see everything, in terms of our intelligence, there was still something unbelievable about all this because this the thought, you know, why would a country <laughs> launch an unprovoked, premeditated attack in this way that are going to have clear, massive consequences, not just for Ukraine, but for Russia and the whole and destabilize the world. It, it, it I get it. I get why people had a hard time sort of seeing, yeah. seeing, I mean, I think there were a lot of Russians who were really surprised by this, who thought, including Russian government officials, who didn't think that that this was going to unfold the way it did. So, mm. um, you know, I think part of it, part of it is not having the benefit of full information. Part of it is just the difficulty to imagine something like this happening. And this, I mean, the fact that we are now living through what is the greatest security crisis in Europe since the Second World War, the greatest refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War. Uh, you know, that's there's a lot of us who don't have that that direct memory. And I think, you know, if you think back to what we've lived through just in the last few years in terms of, uh, you know, a once in a century pandemic, <laughs> right, a right, right. attack uh, on the Capitol that unlike any we'd seen since 1812. I mean, you know, we these things can happen. Uh, and now a war in Europe that we haven't seen this, the likes of which since the Second World War. So. Yeah, um, every crazy thing has happened in the yeah. world. So there's no, you know, yeah. reason to think that you know we're not immune to uh, history. Right. right. I was I have a conversation. We were talking about our kids before. I was having this conversation with my kids who are 15 and 13, and really trying to explain what's going on. And the 13 year old said something like, um, "Well, Dad, how come I never experience this kind of thing here? How come this doesn't affect me?" He was really having trouble wrapping mm-hmm. his mind around mm-hmm. the fact that far away. Bad things happen, yeah. but you know his life in a you know comfortable DC existence, um, absent his drum teacher who stormed the Capitol, <laughs> um, you know d- doesn't affect him. And you know it's a yeah. Hardly, but I think what's interesting about this, you probably have this conversation with your kids sure, too. Sure, yeah. You're in the business of uh, <laughs> of, yeah, yeah. of you know trying to make bad situations better. Yeah, and I think that that look, I think one of the things that shocked the world is. This was not, in in my view, an accurate perception, but there was a perception that Europe was kind of fixed, mm-hmm. you know, that Europe had had a terrible history in the 19th and 20th century, tremendous bloodshed, but it was it was lo- more or less at peace. Okay, yes, you had the Balkans. Yes, you certainly had Russia's incursion, initial invasion in Ukraine eight years ago. And there was, there was ep- you know, pockets of instability, but in general, Europe was fixed and the challenges were elsewhere. Over post 9-11, it was Middle East, it was Afghanistan. Uh, certainly in the last several years, it's a lot focused on the Asia Pacific or Indo-Pacific, which I, th- I think is correct strategically, but the sense that this kind of thing wouldn't happen in Europe anymore. And so I think that's part of what's shaken everyone. And also it's a reminder of how interconnected we are because there's not a corner of the world that is not affected by this, whether it's measured by energy prices or the food, uh, a food security crisis that is likely coming because of the number of countries around the world from Europe to Africa to Latin America who rely to a great deal on exports from Russia or Ukraine in terms of wheat and grain. Yeah. So 
there's a lot we could cover, but one way I, I think it might help is to sort of focus on the work that the administration has done on this crisis is to help us think through what the most difficult decisions that the administration has faced mm -hmm. so far on mm -hmm. this. What's been the hardest call that you think the president's had to make with the help of well, it's it's folks like you and, uh, yeah, and the secretary? Look, it's sort of where to start when you think about hard calls. But I, I think the toughest line to navigate here, the president's been very clear that the U.S. Uh, is not going to be militarily involved in Ukraine directly. And the escalation th threat and danger is real. And at the same time, we want to do everything we can to support Ukraine in terms of humanitarian assistance, economic assistance, political support, as well as military support. And the United States and our partners, we're not alone, are providing a tremendous amount of military support to the Ukrainians. Again, trying to think of historical parallels, I cannot think of a parallel where we are, have provided so much assistance in such a short period of time in a, in a conflict in which we are not a combatant. Yeah. Last week alone, the president allocated a, a billion dollars for just in one week <laughs> for yeah. security yeah. assistance. So, and that's on top of a billion dollars in the previous year. So, so a couple billion dollars of security assistance, and that's anti-armor, anti-tank, uh, anti-aircraft, ammunition. I mean, and again, that's not just the United States; it's us with other partners adding in to what we're providing. So, so that's that I mean, so that that's balance a, drives every decision, basically. How do you help the Ukrainians without starting a war with in the, maintaining the escalation dynamic? Right. You don't want to widen the war. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and I mean that's that's a fundamental kind of balance point that yeah. you're, that you're trying that we're all trying to navigate. So to take an example, and one one thing we were talking about before we came over here is, as a discussion point is watching from the outside the, the drama that played out with the MIGs. Yeah. And, and that whole. Uh, strange process versus what's been announced more recently with the S 300s mm -hmm. that Slovakia mm -hmm. is going to be yeah. backfilled yeah. and now Slovakia is going to send yeah. these anti-aircraft anti weapons, which are the Russian made anti-aircraft weapons, which the Ukrainians can operate. And we're, we're okay with that. That is in the balance, the escalatory, uh, what was the phrase you used? The sort of uh, escalatory, escalatory ladder. Yeah, right. Yeah. We, we we are okay with that. Right. And these are systems that can take out Russian planes right. at high altitudes yeah. or force them to fly lower right. so that they can take them out with, um, you know, the shoulder mounted rockets. Yeah. Um, we're okay with that. But the MIG deal for, for whatever reason, we were not okay with, but which would have accomplished the same thing, a plane taking out a Russian plane. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, None of these are clear-cut, easy cases for, for you guys, but can you tell us a little bit about the distinction between those two cases? Yeah. So first, the to be clear, the, the United States does not have an inventory of, of Russian-made MiGs, the airplanes. <laughs> so, so, so these are for these are other countries who who well, we get a say in the in well, not necessarily. No, I mean, it's it's sovereign decisions whether these countries want to provide this capability. Okay, and so. Uh, as is the case with some of the countries providing the anti-aircraft capability, they're saying these are protecting us, right? Meaning if I'm country X and I've got a Soviet-made anti-aircraft capability that I'm they're willing to give up. Warehouse. I'm, yeah, it's actually used. being used. It's like <laughs> protecting my country. So I want to make sure I've got something to backfill that because I'm going to give this up for Ukraine. Okay. Yeah. So, so there's 
nothing preventing any country from providing that capability. That's thing one, okay? I mean, thing two is the judgment of, of our intelligence community and of our military was that that would be escalatory. And, and the MiGs would be escalatory. And I think in part because of the power not. projection, I mean, it's, it's the defense offense uh, difference in weaponry, Got right? It. And so Got defensive it. systems um, versus systems that could be offensive. What's interesting, too, is I what see. you're yeah. seeing on a lot of the Russian air attacks, and the Pentagon's briefed a lot of this, is that a lot of the Russian air attacks is what they in the in the in the lingo is called standoff. So okay. they're actually taking place not because they're flying over Ukraine. The actual Russian air is still over Russian territory firing into Ukraine. Right. And a lot of the, the air attacks we've seen, most of them are through missiles. So if these are things that a MiGs or a no-fly zone actually wouldn't do much to yeah. prevent. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the way we look at it, right, like that attack in Western Ukraine was from, was, was fired from an aircraft over Russian territory, you know, that yeah. lobbed into Ukraine. Yeah. So, so MiGs wouldn't have done it. So, the way I kind of yeah. think of it, I used to work at the Pentagon, right? So, and in the Pentagon, you think of requirements. What are the requirements you're trying to meet? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there is a threat from the air into Ukraine. Where's that threat coming from? What can we do to mitigate against that threat? The judgment right now, and let's be clear, this is a dynamic conflict, right? right? And right. war. Could, we'll take twists and turns that I don't can't predict yet. But but right now, the, the principal threat from the air can be met by these anti-aircraft systems, either the ones that we are providing or the ones that our partners can provide these some of these Russian-made systems. What do you think the – are you surprised that we have not seen any retaliation on the part of Russia so far, considering the amount of security assistance we're providing and the level – of, uh, of the sanctions? Well, I mean, again, it's, it is, it's war and the enemy gets a vote. So you know, we've been very clear to them that you know, our deterrence remains strong. I mean, President Biden has said repeatedly and he will has, has made clear this week in Brussels with 29 other NATO leaders that NATO will defend every inch of its territory in the United States remains committed to its Article 5 commitment, which is means w mutual defense for one another. Yeah. But I, you know, honestly, I can't speculate. I can't explain why we haven't seen some of the things yet that, that you've, uh, you've identified. But I, all I could say is we think about that all the time. I mean, you know, part of, part of the, the, I find in government, you spend a lot of your time worrying, yeah. right? You, that's yeah. part of your job is to just worry about things. Now, the challenge is you don't want the worry to weigh down on you so much that you lose the sense of optimism or ambition, right? Yeah. yeah. But you've got to be, uh, particularly anything involving the military, you've got to always be thinking about, you know, how things may play out two, three, four, five moves ahead. You, as someone who wrote a book about a um, very complicated set of peace talks, mm -hmm. how much time do you spend thinking about five, six, seven moves ahead and how this can end mm -hmm. and what what are the you know what are the range of possibilities that that you have in your mind and is there anything you look to historically that that oh maybe that's a model yeah we're constantly thinking about how this might end obviously and prior to the invasion we spent all of our time here at the state department thinking about how we could prevent it from happening so what kind of diplomatic agreement could be possible yeah that would protect the U Ukrainian sovereignty, protect their their free will, their ability to uh, decide their own future, but at the same time, 
address in any way whatever the Russians were were asking for. And it was clear that when you looked at the Venn diagram, there was always very little overlap. The Russians have had maximalist goals and have not moved off those maximalist goals in any way that I've seen. Even in these I haven't seen any various in, peace talks that have I've seen very little to suggest that they have. Now to be clear, we're not part of these peace talks. The, the Ukrainians are. And so our job from our perspective is to support them as best we can. Yeah. And you know, we've been very clear from from a US perspective that we, the United States, will stick by our commitment to maintain NATO's open door, which is the idea that if a country would like to be part of NATO and willing to go through all the, the hoops to make that happen, the door would remain open, but it's not our decision to make. We're going to continue to do whatever we can to support Ukraine uh, through this crisis and beyond once this crisis ends. So it's it's not for us to judge for them what their best future is. Yeah. Um, and there have been tons of historical models kicked around in the debate generally. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And there's been no shortage of commentary of, of what they say are, are off ramps. I just haven't seen much to suggest that Putin is much, is very interested in an off ramp. So there's nothing that uh, we're there hasn't. I mean, we're some, not close to we're not we're not even close to that somebody, discussion yet. No, somebody emailed me the other day who knew I'd done this book on Dayton years ago and said, oh, there, you should think of a Dayton. And I just don't see the par the parallel. I mean, there was obviously a lot of twists and turns in the Bosnian War that led to Dayton, but then also just the months and months of diplomacy leading up to that point. We're just not close to that yet. When do, when does it ripen to that point? What well, has to, what I, has to, what are the conditions that, that get you there? Yeah, look, I think that, that Russia is going to have to move off its maximalist demands. I mean, that's, yeah. that's full stop. And I don't, you know, Putin has has laid it out plainly what his view of the situation is and and yeah. what he thinks where he thinks Ukraine should sit in the international system which is as a vassal to Russia right and uh that's just an unacceptable position from from our perspective from the Ukrainians perspective the Ukrainians are making very clear every day that they're going to fight for their country and fight for their future and fight for their ability to just to decide their own future so i just i don't see it and that's why i think in the near term, I think the, the priority for us is de-escalate, end the war. Russian troops need to leave. There is, whenever this ends, there is going to be a massive reconstruction effort that is going to be required, and that's something we, the U.S., are going to have to be part of, but also Europe uh, and other countries as well. And we've had Asian allies uh, provide assistance to Ukraine and and certainly be part of the sanctions effort, and so. Uh, that's going to be required. We have, again, more refugees in, in Europe today than at any point we've had since the Second World War. There are 10 million people. One quarter of Ukraine's population is currently displaced. And so we're going to be living with the ramifications of that for a long, long time. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is important to talk about or that is part of the discussion in Washington that you think is frustrating that it's not discussed more. <laughs> and I don't mean necessarily about what you guys are doing, but yeah. just is there anything like that that you want people to know about? Well, I mean, I think two thoughts. Well, one is one is just a reality and one's a dilemma. The reality is the most precious asset we have is time. So we have a strategy. We have a strategy to punish and isolate Russia, and we have a strategy to help the Ukrainians. And uh, we need some time for that strategy to play out in some ways. Now, the U Ukrainians are going to be the judge of, of how they, they kind of control the rudder stick, right? Because, as I said, they're the ones talking to the Russians every day, but they're fighting for their country every day. But this needs to be a strategic defeat for Putin. 
just uh, this week, the State Department announced that war crimes have been committed. Uh, I mean, we've we made that statement as a as an assertion last week, but then there's evidence to back that up, and we formally have made that announcement this week. And there's going to have to be accountability for what we've seen happen in Ukraine, and for Russia. And this is perhaps another reason why there was just disbelief that this he would Putin would take these steps. If you think of Putin's goals, if his goal is to weaken NATO, if his goals are to uh, ensure that the people living in his periphery are under his thumb, if you want to weaken the European Union, if you want to project Russian influence around the world, it's hard to see how he's accomplishing any of those goals right now. I mean, you know, he's brutalizing Ukraine and is only pushing it further away. He's strengthening NATO. And, and we saw once again this week a full display of NATO strength. The European Union has taken actions that very few predicted in terms of its willingness to impose real painful sanctions on Russia. And what we're seeing is a slow decoupling of Russia from Europe economically. If you look at Russia's ability to project power around the world, this is a Russian economy that's going to be devastated. It's a Russia that's military has is being humbled. Uh, it's lost a lot of equipment, and it's not going to have as much throw weight around the world uh, for quite some time. So it's hard to see how he's accomplishing those goals. Um, but but we need some time. I mean, I think and and watch. Look, we live in an impatient world. We judge ourselves minute to minute. Uh, and the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, was 13 uh, days, right? And and but yeah, I mean, given the the. It would have played out a little differently right. with modern right. communications. So, right, exactly. Right, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think back to the Gulf War in 90, 1990, 1991, and how that might would have played out differently, perhaps, if we had had the the kind of Twitter and real time commentary where we have today. We at that point, remember that was. I mean, you and I are the same age. I remember that watching Bernard Shaw and Peter Arnett in Baghdad on CNN. That was your only. Access. That was it. That yeah. was. <laughs> there was. Yeah. You know, that was. It was just. Yeah. Uh, that was it. Okay. So that's one thing. The dilemma is we still believe, I still believe that if you think of the geostrategic chessboard over the next several decades, that the dynamics in the Indo-Pacific are going to be driving a lot of that change. And, and, and China's role in the international system is going to continue to be a defining one and, and how we respond to that. And, and I think in some ways we have been coming closer together as a a kind of family of like-minded countries. The U.S. and China. No, 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 no. no. The U.S., Europe, the I West, see, vis -vis the so-called the so-called yeah, yeah. West. V well, vis-a-vis -vis yeah. what's happening in the world, and as President Biden talks about, um, you know, this fundamental fault line between autocracy and democracy. Well, yeah, that seems a little almost like a talking point and a cliche until this crisis. Until this crisis, right? And now you're as we're watching China try to navigate its way through this, uh, and I think so far in somewhat unconstructive ways, right, in terms of their uh, relationship with Russia. But that challenge still exists, the, the challenge in the Indo-Pacific. At the same time, we have this urgent crisis in, in Europe, and we are going to need as a country to gird ourselves for s being able to do both at the same time. As Secretary Blinken says, we got to be able to run and, and chew gum at the same time. It's not walking, it's running. And that's going to require resources, patience, I hope political uh, will and bipartisanship here as, as we're trying to navigate through these challenges. And this gets back to another historical analogy that one can't help to make, which is the early Cold War 
and the efforts to sort of build up our own capacity in the United States, as well as the global infrastructure that we use to wage the Cold War successfully. We are at another one of these moments. It's been a cliche for the last three decades to declare the post-Cold War dead. I wrote a book, co-wrote a book in 2008 about the the years between the fall of the wall and the fall of the Twin Towers. And that was one sort of bracket of the post-Cold War era. In this crisis, now everyone has said this is truly the end of the post-Cold War era. But we're going to have to kind of find that same creativity, resilience, moxie that helped us wage the Cold War uh, and successfully over several decades to what we're facing right now in the future. But we're going to be dealing this with this, the fallout from this crisis for for a long time. First, we got to get the crisis to end. But then, as I said, just given the destruction of Ukraine and the yeah. the the metastasization of this crisis across so many realms, we'll be dealing with the consequences for for a long time. Derek, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate Thanks. it. I know it's you're very busy, you. and it's very nice of you to have us in here and to give us this much of your time. Sure, great to see you again. Thanks. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Carlos Prieto. Brooke Hayes is our senior producer. Jenny Ament is our executive producer. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. Dylan still plays guitar. Mm. Um, you know, he's totally, he's uh, 15, totally obsessed with, with guitar. That's awesome. He's, so, so my son's 15 too. I, was, yeah. I always tell him you could be Secretary of State one day. <laughs> oh, because oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. Yeah. yeah.